Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 59. Great program this week. Very happy to be back on schedule. Very happy to have uh, a friend of mine, excellent guest, returning guest to the program. Dare I say, friend of the show. Um, but before we can jump into the conversation, I want to do my pitch for Counterpunch. Um, don't know exactly when you're going to be hearing this yet, but uh, if the fun drive is still going on, I urge you to consider donating to Counterpunch. We have so few spaces on the left online that we can depend on to air our grievances, to fight out the ideological battles, to to disagree and to, you know, really interrogate positions and try to come to some kind of uh, uh, understanding, whether it's Syria, whether it's Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, whether it's any number of issues of war and peace, the coming uh, escalation in Syria, Russia, all sorts of issues. Counterpunch is in many ways, I think, an outpost in the wilderness. Um, you look at how many spaces there are online that are controlled and or dominated by foundation funding that are strings attached, that are adjuncts of the liberal establishment and so forth. Counterpunch is none of those things. And that's why I urge you to give, if you can, of course, give what you can. Um, a subscription to the print magazine is another good way of supporting Counterpunch. I love getting it in the mail. I think you will too. I'm looking right now at the cover of a recent issue that is Hillary Clinton being wooed and uh, kissed by Henry Kissinger as Atlanta burns in the background, a la Gone with the Wind. Now, come on. That's pretty good stuff. Take a look at the magazine. Consider a subscription. Um, of course, also, you can follow my work um, on Counterpunch as well as on my own website, StopImperialism.org, which needs to be updated and will be very shortly. Anyway, let's uh, turn to my guest this week. I'm very happy to have Sukant Chandan back on the show. Sukant is a friend of mine, but more importantly, he is an activist. He is a filmmaker. He is the coordinator of the Malcolm X movement based in London. He is, in my opinion, one one of the most committed radicals and activists I know, and I'm very happy to welcome him back on the show. Sukant, welcome back to Counterpunch Radio. Hey, Eric, that's really kind of you. Good to have, good to have you uh, having me back on. And good to have you have me have you back on. So um, now that <laughs> so uh, let's let's jump right into uh, the real important developments on your front. You have a book that you have just uh, worked on and 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 released, and um, I think it is of the utmost importance, particularly now. But I don't want to uh, I don't want to bury the lead here. So why don't you tell us about the book? Tell us about what it is, why it's important right now, and why people should really consider uh, getting their hands on it. Sure, Eric. Well, we just um, passed the fifth anniversary of the martyrdom of Marma Gaddafi just, just, just over a week ago. And so um, for the fifth anniversary years ago, I thought it's very important that this, uh, this occasion is marked properly and appropriately. And I thought probably, you know, a good way of doing that is to release a, a volume, a publication, a book that collects together uh, a range of voices and contributors who are decolonial, anti-imperialist, socialist, black power, black radical oriented, etc., to give proper, deeper 
historical context, political context, and pro-resistance context to the contribution of Muammar Gaddafi to the global revolution and the African revolution and the Libyan revolution in particular, um, but also to help to educate new generations of young people and also young people in terms of what the politics and the contribution of Muammar Gaddafi was. And so that, that project is this book. It's a historic book because the symbolic leader uh, of the Libyan anti-imperialist resistance, uh, one of the sons of Muammar Gaddafi, Saif al-Islam Gaddafi, has endorsed the book and sent a, a supporting quote that's published on the, the back cover of the book. Um, and it's the first public message that Saif al-Islam has sent in the last five years since his capture by the Zintani Brigade around five years ago. And he's, he's, he's at liberty now, by the way, which is another uh, victory for the Libyan resistance. So it's, 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 a really, it's a historic book. And with the book, there's also a, a, a related uh, documentary. It's 53 minutes long. It's called NATO's War in Libya. Um, uh, I made it in Libya during 2011 and, and a few interviews in London in 2012. And that, again, is the only documentary that actually has Libyans as the main protagonist, their voices on the ground in Libya, how they felt, what they felt, what they were saying, how they were resisting, and how they were analyzing the, uh, one of the greatest scandals of the 21st century so far. So it's a tool for us as revolutionaries and activists to learn ourselves and to educate and mobilize and inspire other people. And uh, it's been really wonderful when I put the first post up about the book hundreds of shares on, on, on Facebook, overwhelmingly of young uh, people in Africa uh, on the continent itself sharing it. So um, that's primarily why I do what I do politically, is to assist our people in the homelands against imperialism. That's what it's doing. But we need to do similarly to um, the circles of young people within the West, the United States and Britain, etc., especially those inspired by the Black Lives Matter movement, because when it comes to Libya, absolutely, their Black Lives Matter and should be put at the forefront of our activism. There's no doubt about it, and I just want to I just want to um, uh, convey something that I think is very important. There are a lot of people who, not only at the time but since then, uh, either were unaware of, or uh, I think maybe thought was insignificant the role of Muammar Gaddafi and the role of the Libyan Arab Jamahiriya in supporting struggles around the world and especially in supporting African diaspora struggles, black radical struggles, black radical organizations. There's uh, just a quick little anecdote. Um, here in New York, we had a, a very small protest that we had put together in defense of Saif al-Islam Gaddafi when he was under threat of execution about a year ago and um, we had a couple of different people from a couple of different black radical organizations who had come and were giving their accounts of how many times they and their groups had been invited into the Libyan consulate right next to the United Nations here in New York to have their events, to have their panel discussions to, to meet and to uh, expand their networks and so forth that Gaddafi and the Libyan government under Gaddafi was one of the main benefactors of pan-African movements, of black radicalism, and in many ways it was the epicenter of that resistance globally. You know, absolutely, you're, you're, you're right, Eric. Um, I think his contribution goes a lot deeper and uh, wider than, than that as well, although that was very important. I mean, similarly to here in London and in England, um, most of the radical 
uh, anti-imperialist socialist organizations and the and, and the African Asian organizations in the late 70s and into the 80s and into the 90s were funded uh, by the Libyan Jamaria and Muammar Gaddafi. So yeah, absolutely, and you know, and we can see now he's turning into a revolutionary folk hero, uh, um, Muammar Gaddafi, as I said last night. Who was this man who lived, who came from, you know, his youth in a, a, a as as a humble poor peasant family living in a tent in the desert near Sirte, who then <laughs> took over Libya in a revolutionary uh, act or a coup, instituted socialism, developed pan-Africanism and a- a- Arab nationalism, supported every revolutionary struggle in the world, brought the best water from under the Sahara to every Libyan person and beyond, uh, which was the first stage of a multi-stage strategy of greening, literally greening the desert in the Sahara and Sahel region. It's 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 an amazing story, and uh, those who weren't confused and who haven't now invested their political ethical capital in the NATO project in 2011, there's new there's new generations of young people who who haven't got that problematic history, who are not invested in that problematic way in 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 that project of destru- destruction against Libya, who are not frankly just clonally prejudiced who are open-minded about these things. So, you know, we have a lot of work to get the truth across to them. There's no doubt. And and I think it it uh, it's important to note as well, and, you know, this is often poo-pooed by many people, including some on the left who shamefully uh, supported the war against Gaddafi under the very uh, false banner of revolution, in my view. But uh, be that as it may, um, it's also very important to remember that Gaddafi also, uh, and, and the Libyan Arab Jamahidiyah, was also an experiment in grassroots democracy. It was also an experiment in not only anti-imperialism, but in creating an economic system and a political system that was truly independent and, I would say, responsive to the local needs of people. One of the great misconceptions about Gaddafi was that Gaddafi was some kind of an autocrat who dictated every aspect of the Libyan state, which is utterly false. In fact, a lot of the decision-making was localized and decentralized, and that's another aspect of the the, I would say the propaganda myth about Libya and Gaddafi that must be challenged. Yeah, absolutely. In my documentary, there's one Libyan sister. Um, I don't know if she's alive or not at the, uh, at the moment. Uh, God bless her. Uh, but she said a, a couple of years, and this, this was filmed in 2011, so this is this is circa 2009. She said around 2009, uh, there were some uh, some executive bodies of the Libyan government. And they unilaterally made a decision that women under the age of 45 years old could not travel in cars by themselves without a chaperone, uh, a, a immediate male family chaperone. She says they made two mistakes. First of all, it's illegal what they did, and they didn't, and they, and they didn't go to the people first. She said they made this decision. We, us women and our, and, and our allies uh, amongst our men, went into the streets, protested, reversed that rule. She says, because the first thing they should have done if they wanted to do that was go to the people's congresses, the, the mass people's councils, where decisions are made. Once those uh, people's congresses have, have, have agreed to that measure across the country, then the decision can be made at the highest level of government. And this is just a, it's an anecdotal example of how Libya worked. And Libyans always told me, and it's, um, it's, not, it's not immediately appreciable how the popular governance worked. But the more you hear the anecdotes, the more you study the structure of the socialist Jamaria system, 
the more you understand. It really was just people at a local level just discussing and doing what they wanted to do. You know, if they wanted to change the layout of a street because they had a wedding party, they'll do it. If they want to put a speed bump in the street, they'll do it. No one's going to stop them. If they want to change the street lights, they did it. You know, everything was just done by people. And, 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 and that's how the society was run. It was really, really interesting political project. Of course, the counter-revolutionaries, when you're faced with a mobilized people defending the unity and the socialism of their country and, and the gains of their revolution, you know, the counter-revolutionaries can't really have a look into that process. They could try, but, but the power is literally was with the people. It was, it was, a, it was a fascinating and inspiring uh, system. One thing that I think is governance. one thing that I think is interesting to note, and this is also almost never discussed, is the fact that uh, Muammar Gaddafi and uh, you know the movement that he was the figurehead of was in many ways an attempt to implement some of the aspects of socialism, uh, and of course you know inspired by various movements that had come before, but it wasn't merely to copy Western style socialism or Soviet style socialism. Socialism. Rather, it was to adapt some of those principles to a more, uh, let's say, indigenous-oriented, native-oriented mindset. And so a lot of these uh, local councils that you're talking about in many ways are modeled on uh, Soviets of the Russian Revolution, but equally on tribal councils that had been around for generations, hundreds of years, local tribal councils where the people would sit down, maybe perhaps around a fire or whatever, hash out whatever their disagreements were, come to a consensus, make decisions, and move on. You see that in places, in Pashtun communities in Afghanistan. You see that in many other places as well. In fact, in Afghanistan, it's one of the main reasons why the U.S.-imposed so-called parliament in Kabul is really a dysfunctional body, because it's not aligned with the values that have been ingrained in that society for hundreds of years. In Libya, it was, and that's part of the reason why it functioned yeah i think i think it's an interesting uh, system I, th- I think everything you said is, is is absolutely correct in 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 libya uh, as well as the system of people's congresses you had this um system of tribes as well and both overlapped each other yeah exactly but but, but it, it seemed to me the way libya was governed in a popular way it wasn't formal and top down at all and bureaucratic it's um it was so you had these people's congresses and then you have the kind of some, what some Libyan comrades call the social tribes, uh, and all the tribes are social, obviously, because they're, they're, they're mass organizations, basically. And so you had this organic kind of mosaic and interaction and interplay, sometimes uh, conflictive to a certain level, and, and often developing a harmonious relationship between, between the tribes. So now in the Libyan resistance, it's kind of reflecting the Jamaria. Again, you, you have obviously the military organizations, you have the popular organizations, you don't have the People's Congresses as, as before necessarily. You have different factions of the resistance who, who, who are in touch with each other and coordinate with each other. And then you have the movement of the tribes, as they call them, or the movement of the social tribes. Whereas the, 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 the respected elders in the tribes uh, represent the rest of their tribe and, and interrelate with other tribes as well um, in, in, in harmony for the defense of the homeland and in terms of the distribution of wealth. So and and so it's you, you have several um, kind of uh, or organizations of popular governance under the uh, under the Jamaria, which was as you said was was appropriate and applicable to the situation of the people as as you as you find them. You don't have to you know you don't have to be too uh, what's the word clever 
uh, and come up with some very complex system of governance. People want to run their lives. So you give, so you give whatever uh, networks of popular uh, uh, organizing that exists, you, you empower that. Um, and, and in all of our working class communities, you can see how people interact and how people interact. And also the role of women uh, and older women is very important in communities. So all the, although the tribes and still now and under the Jamaria will be led by men, Marma Gaddafi in the Jamarian project put, this, put the position of women in the leadership of that socialist system. And although he's mocked for it, the reason he put the revolutionary women guards, uh, he initiated that in the late 70s, was to say, look, women are at the forefront of this revolution. Yes, we're in a quite conservative traditionalist tribal society, um, uh, tribal desert society. Uh, but nevertheless, our liberation project and our faith of Islam and the way he interpreted the, the Quran, uh, Gaddafi and Islam, informs us that women have to be protected and they have to be at the forefront of our struggle and, uh, and our societal project as well. So the women were put at the forefront so at the People's Congresses. Again, you can see in the documentary during the NATO war of aggression, there's mass meetings of women. Men are, men are there, but women are taking a lead. And Gaddafi said himself during 2011, women are ahead of the Libyan men in the resistance against NATO. So fascinating uh, 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 societal organization that really we can learn from as well as from the other socialist experiences and countries as well. Part of the reason why I think the project that you're engaged in is so important, aside from just, you know, publicizing the information and, and, and marking a very dark uh, anniversary, is also because the we have to recognize just how powerful uh, the concept of the stereotype is, right? Walter Lippmann, the famous uh, journalist uh, and propagandist, famously famously defined the stereotype as the image we see in our mind's eye. And that image is socially constructed and it is informed by things that are very powerful institutions like the media, for instance, and like our political leadership and so forth. And so today there is a popular image of Gaddafi as having been some kind of a brutal dictator, an autocrat, a murderer, uh, you know, a, a mass imp in, in prison, uh, and prisoner, I guess you could say, um, you know, all of these, all of these stereotypes about Gaddafi, which are formulated carefully and and quite deliberately, I would add, by the corporate media, by the political leadership in the West who justified their war and so forth. A lot of that is what really has to be pushed back against as well. Did Gaddafi make some mistakes? Yes, indeed. One of the big mistakes, of course, being getting rid of the weapons program, which ultimately I think was part of the downfall of Libya. But be that as it may, he made mistakes like anybody does, particularly in a climate of increasing hostility and increasing encirclement by the forces of empire. But all of that being said, I think it's very important to bring out all of the things that Gaddafi did and what Gaddafi stood for, say, in contradiction or in contradistinction to many leaders around the world who didn't have the foresight, who didn't have the courage, and who didn't have the sheer, um, you know, tenacity to do things like, oh, I don't know, take on the Saudis and the Qataris in public at the Gulf Cooperation Council to call them degenerates and, and, and misleaders to focus on development in Africa. All of these things that Gaddafi was doing that are completely suppressed in the mainstream narrative, that's what needs to be brought out, and I think that's part of what your project is. Yeah, I mean, just just, just, just listen and read uh, Marma Gaddafi's speech at the UN United Nations General Assembly in, in late 2009. He, he immediately preceded uh, 
President Obama's first global address. Read the speech. And as I said last night at the book and documentary launch uh, that we had last night, you know, no one can tell me that imperialism didn't listen to that speech and yeah. sign, sign his death certificate just a second after it. You know, mm -hmm. it was, he, he raised too many revolutionary demands, concrete revolutionary demands, while Libya was in this, had the chair of the United Nations General Assembly. So Gaddafi is formally, it's not a propaganda speech. Very interesting. I really request people go back to that and read that speech carefully. He is saying, he's representing the Libyan Jamaria as the chair of the General Assembly, and he is putting forward to the United States formally that the colonizers of Africa have to engage in a process of reparations of something up to $800 trillion for the crimes of colonialism in Africa. And he said, which is very pertinent to what's going on now, especially with um, the rise of um, what I call the new fascism, the 21st century fascism, which is essentializing immigrants and refugees as some kind of quote-unquote uh, um, kind of existentialist, impurifying cultural uh, threat to the lily-white, wonderful Western white world. He said, if colonialism does not give reparations to it for its crimes against the colonized people, then colonized people, and he's talking particularly about African people, have every right to come to Europe to share in that wealth which was stolen from them. And until you have given back all that wealth, you have no right to complain whatsoever about our people coming to the West and Europe in, and trying to share in that wealth that you stole from them. And that remains our position. As, as long as the West does not give compensation and reparations for all its crimes historically and currently to our homelands, to our people, well, our people are only going to come naturally to where the, the loot has been taken from them and deposited in, in, in the West. So, so, so what Gaddafi was putting out in terms of his concrete demands, concrete processes in regional and, uh, and, and, and international uh, multilateral organizations such as the United Nations and the African Union, and, and the Arab League, as you, as you cited when he denounced the number one collaborators with imperialism in, in, in the Muslim world, in, in the Gulf kingdoms, all of these things in a context whereby imperialism is going to deeper crisis because it's, it's, you know, its reach of exploitation is contracting because of the rise of the BRICS in the global south, which is creating more war and exploitation and trauma uh, and imperialism lashing out. In that context, they could not tolerate someone like Marma Gaddafi leading Africa and the Global South. It was just impossible. So he had to be removed. They're, they're doing similarly to the Bolivarian Revolution and the other allied processes in, in so-called Latin America. And, and, and they've done, they're trying to attempt to do that to totally destroy the independence and resistance project, which, whose axis is the Syrian government, which includes Iran and Hezbollah, etc. So yeah, all of these factors have to have to be put 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 together, and 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 the book is trying to do that uh, in, in in and I think in a quite effective way. There's only very few decent books on Libya. I would say actually, the best books on Libya is is Jonathan Behrman's book, uh, which was published in 1986, called Gaddafi's Libya. Horace Campbell's book is very good, but he's anti-Gaddafi. Unfortunately, his book on the 2011 NATO war in Libya. His basic premise is neither NATO nor Gaddafi, but his entire book rubbishes his, 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 his primary premise of neither NATO nor Gaddafi. His whole research proves that his, his, his anti-Gaddafi position, it makes no sense. Um, so I would say the book that I've been part of uh, publishing is, is, is the best anti-imperialist book that you can find, which brings together many voices historically and currently analyzing 
uh, uh, Libya from. It's got Fidel Castro, Nelson Mandela, Robert Mugabe, Akbar Mohammed, he's the International Secretary of the Nation of Islam, Gerard Pereira from Mataba, my interview with Dylan Kimati, Kenneth Carr from the All African People's Revolutionary Party in Tripoli, and uh, obviously yourself, Eric, you, you, you very kindly contributed uh, uh, what? chapters. What? Yes. <laughs> I, I, I think I got your permission. I'm, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm I expect wrong. I expect major royalties. Major Absolutely. Royalties. Well, that Gaddafi gold has gone, man. So <laughs> I don't know what we're gonna be able to get out of this now. <laughs> oh shit! All right, I guess I'll just I guess I'll just contribute as a uh, as a community service. That's, that's very kind of you, and your <laughs> and your beautiful poem, uh, Africa's Jewel, when it went into this world. I mean, your 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 articles are important, Eric, in the book because it helps to bring. Um, the politics of 2011 right up to date uh, to, to, to 2016 going into 2017 about the developments of the resistance of what's happened to Saif al-Islam and your excellent article um, analyzing brilliantly the way that Libya has been used and abused in the political ma uh, machinations of the US political circles as well. So really, really, really uh, in, in important kind of uh, dimensions of the Libya and related issues are all uh, encapsulated in that book, including the so-called migrant crisis as well. Um, Libya really was the linchpin in terms of sec people's security um, throughout Africa and into West Asia as well. And, and removing the Jamaria has literally collapsed um, uh, much of, the African, uh, of Africa's standing up to imperialist uh, divide and ruin and divide and rule. Well, that's exactly right. And I've argued that many times before, including on this program and in many things that I've written, that the war in Libya, it really shouldn't be seen as an end point. It's really the jumping off point. It's really the beginning of a much larger project, a much larger destabilization that is not even not even relegated solely to the so-called Arab Spring, but is actually uh, in, in many ways is the sort of the uh, watershed moment for the current phase of imperialism in Africa and in the Middle East. Uh, I mean, if you look at uh, conflicts like what's going on in Nigeria with Boko Haram, or you look at uh, the the ongoing civil war in Libya, you look at a lot of the destabilization taking place in the Sinai Peninsula, Egypt, between Egypt and Israel, you look at a number of other conflicts, obviously the spread of ISIS and, and all of the rest of that, what's happened in Syria obviously goes without saying. All of these things are in many ways intimately connected to the war in Libya, that without that, without the uh, overthrow and assassination of Gaddafi, and of course the weapons that flowed out of Libya once the society was collapsed, uh, without that you might not have a lot of the conflicts you see today. So I think that Libya and the war in Libya is important as a historical, uh, um, you know, anchor for understanding the current phase of neocolonialism. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and to develop that point slightly further, perhaps, um, is to also analyze the way in which these imperialist wars have been a fundamental means by which actually imperialist governments themselves are developing far-right and fascistic policies domestically as well. As, as Aimé Césaire said vis-à-vis um, -vis Hitler, he says the reason why Hitler is so despised uh, by white Europeans. <coughs> Take that again. Stop. <clears throat> oh, sorry, sorry. You okay? <coughs> Take your time, man. All right. Yep. Just went down the wrong tube. <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, that's what happens when you uh, 
You make an I May Cesare reference that I'm not ready for. <laughs> <coughs> All right. Let's redo the uh, negritude moment. Go with, yeah. um, <clears throat> start with, uh, as I May Cesare says, three, two, one. As, as I May Cesare correctly said, uh, vis-a-vis Hitler, he says, look, the problem that white Europeans have with Hitler is that Hitler's real crime for them is he's done to the European people what European colonialism was doing to the non-European people for centuries. And I think it's important uh, what Ima Cesare is saying here, because what he's implying is that if we, and I suppose by we, I'm including myself, unusually (laughs) on this comment with Western people, if we in the West can stop the export of fascism by imperialist governments, then that puts, puts us in, in a better ideological, political, and strategic position in stopping the rise of racism and fascism within the West. The problem is we haven't done that. Although there was mass movements against the war in Iraq in 2003, which were correct and just, and I, I was a part of that, despite all the limitations, that was positive. When it came to Libya and then Syria, it's been a popular imperialist war. Uh, no mass demonstrations uh, against the yeah. imperialist wars uh, against uh, Libya and Syria. So what's happened with... with particularly with Libya um, and Syria, but particularly with Libya, because it, 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 it includes, uh, it, it kind of concentrically overlaps with issues of uh, whiteness and black, black liberation, African liberation. What's happened with Libya, we've entered into a, a, a clearly surreal political trajectory now in the West, surreally fascist, surreally racist, whereby people are acting in a very interesting way, on mass, people are allowing the export of fascism to Libya and Syria. It's directly then causing, uh, uh, obviously, a, 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 a profound trauma to the people of those regions, which is causing people to come in large numbers to areas of security and safety, which is the West. So the West exports fascism so it can have social peace with, within it. But people are, are, are basically facilitating or turning a blind eye to the export of fascism. But then that fascism is, is, is developing at home. You can't export fascism and not expect fascism to develop in the West. You can't, you can't support or turn a blind eye to, to, to mad supremacist death squads and rapists and sexual enslavers and mutilators that, that NATO is directly developing, Nigeria, Mali, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, Syria, Libya, etc., and not expect some of that political problem to develop in, 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 your, in, in your own domestic uh, uh, sphere. And that's what's happened. So with the Brexit referendum, um, with the victory of Brexit, the referendum, sorry, uh, which, is, which is the main project of all the fascists and the far right combined with their allies in the right wing of the UK state, you can, say, you can see this coming to full circle. So if you support the export of fascism in Syria and Libya, don't be surprised that fascism has just 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 arisen uh, very clearly within 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 your own country, and and this is something particularly I I, I put out to Western liberals and Western leftists who 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 echoes uh, NATO's uh, strategies across across the world. How come you support NATO's collapse of Libya and Syria, and then you cry rightly? about the fallout on people in terms of uh, the, 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 the moves of migration. It's, 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 it's a very strange uh, situation. But even when it comes to defending migrants, we can see the left liberal uh, communities within the West 
just they're just keeling over by by the rise of this very uh, vicious new racism that's emerging. So I think these things have to be philosophically and politically uh, put together and understood together as well. Libya is not separate to what's going on in Europe and in the West in terms of the rise of racism and the controversies of immigration. It's directly related. <laughs> and actually, it, you, can, you can root a lot of the problems. They go back deeper uh, generations and centuries before uh, as well. So I'm not trying to say this has just come out in the last decade or so. No. But we can see that there's direct connections between the two. And, you know, we can go back to the revolutionary classics. One nation that oppresses another can, it, can itself not be free. White skin cannot be free if in the black it is branded. These are direct quotes from, uh, uh, from Karl Marx. These are uh, absolutely applicable today, and we have to apply them correctly to, to today, which I don't think many people are doing. No doubt. I want to return to the uh, Brexit and rising fascism and racism issue after the break. But before we do that, I just want to finish the point on Libya. And, and this is, a, I think, something else that, in my view at least, highlights the hypocrisy of many on the left who uh, supported the war in Libya. And let me just clarify what I mean by that. There's two forms of support for the war in Libya. The one form, which many, including including many people that I respect in in on many issues, uh, the one form of support for the war in Libya was support for the false narrative, and then conveniently right. saying you are against the NATO bombing. In other exactly. words, in other very words, important. support yeah. for the so-called revolution, which was made up of these various gangs of uh, you know. Uh, international terrorists and others, and some who were, you know, for various reasons, had grievances against the government, you know, going back many decades and so forth. So support for that, support for the so-called revolution, but opposition to the bombing by the United States, which is an inherently conflicted, in my view, contradictory position, that's one group on the left, right? There's another. There's another group which actually, uh, well, in in many ways, said that they were in support of you know revolutionaries, but not these. We like these, but not those. We don't like Gaddafi, but we like some of the things he's done. These sorts of this sort of position, which sometimes you do find on the left, is in my view also essentially upholding the left flank of imperialism because you are finding justification for a war that you claim to be against, which in my view is utterly uh, discredited. And we saw that actually in the lead up to the Iraq war. Many people demanding that we point out all of the negatives about Iraq and then saying they were against the Iraq war. But you can't have it both ways. You don't have to love Saddam Hussein to, su to, to, to support anti-war positions, right? And yet we find this contradictory uh, stance over and over again, especially with Libya. And I think that that point needs to be made. And the second point that I would like to make uh, is that, in my view, the left, much of the left, the left liberal establishment, the progressives, the democracy nows of the world or the NPRs and all of the yeah. rest of these outlets, they showed their inherent 
uh, white supremacy when it came to Libya, because here was a country that by all objective measures was leading Africa and in many ways leading much of Europe in terms of development, in terms of human, human development, in terms of the development of infrastructure, advancing itself economically, advancing itself socially and culturally, and doing so in a continent that is always derided as backwards, that is always derided as undeveloped and a complete chaos and disaster. It was leading Africa and in many ways leading much of the uh, global south. And that country is the one that is selected for regime change and destruction. And the white liberals who supported that should be ashamed of themselves. Yeah, no, actually, they should be ashamed of themselves. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant comments, uh, Eric. But, you know, uh, and, and, and forgive me that this may sound a little bit, you know, um, out there, but I, I actually absolutely believe this. If you are party to supporting imperialist terrorism that has directly led to the destruction of our homeland, you're a criminal. I'm sorry, you're a criminal. If you've been actively working, if your job is to promote the lies of NATO, which is, you know, it's, it's a, that's a Goebbelsian project that you're involved in. I'm sorry, you know, NATO lied. NATO lies, imperialism lies to justify its, its, its policies of genocide and destruction. If you were active, if you are writing articles, if you are making programs supporting NATO, the Libyan Jamaria, it's no longer, but the Libyan resistance has every right to arrest you and put you on trial for the crimes that you've committed. If anyone has been involved in supporting in any way imperialist crimes, they should be arrested by the Syrian government. Why not? You know, absolutely, they should be arrested and put on trial. This is not a joke. People have lost their homeland. People have lost their loved ones in the tens of thousands, in the hundreds of thousands, and in the millions, because, because people in the West who are not in government, right, are, are helping to bring along the imperialist uh, uh, policies, and bring along to the masses, and for the masses to positively accept it, to positively accept head choppers and sexually enslavers as rebels and freedom fighters in Libya and Syria. You know, it was only a couple of decades ago in, in Latin America, imperialism was doing the same thing with death squads against Honduras, El Salvador, and Nicaragua, and, 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 and many swathes of the Western uh, white liberal left rightly were in support of the people against those death squad, death squad projects that the CIA was subjecting those people. So why is it different when it comes to Africa and Asia? I don't understand this. Unless, like you're saying correctly, uh, Eric, there is a profound uh, problem of white supremacy that plays into it. Yeah, that plays into it. I think also decades of uh, misleadership within our political class and within our political uh, circles. I think uh, infiltration into the left by uh, various by various forms of state and or non-state actors. I think that uh, intellectual confusion and a lack of leadership, a lack of focus, the fact that um, you know we don't have Hugo Chavez anymore, we don't have Gaddafi anymore, we don't have those outspoken leaders for the voices of the global south. I think it also leaves a lot of people uh, on the left with a, uh, let's say, a leadership vacuum. And I know, you know, that might be an unpopular thing to say that, uh, you know, how dare uh, somebody suggest that white Western leftists should listen to brown skinned leaders around the world. But, hey, I'm suggesting it. 
White man's got a god complex. It has to be torn down. White man's burden, my friend. All right, let's take a break. Let's take a break. On the other side of the break, I want to pick up on that issue of uh, uh, Brexit and uh, the rising racist climate and uh, whether or not you or how you see this developing. So uh, we will continue the discussion with Sukant Chandan. Again, you should uh, check out the book. Tell, uh, tell people where to get the book, by the way. Yeah, let me just bring it. So, so there's, there's basically you can you can pay over uh, PayPal or you can do a bank transfer directly to me. The book is um, ten pounds. That's uh, 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 British pounds, ten pounds each. It's eleven pounds of posted and packaging within the UK, or thirteen pounds fifty outside. And you can go to PayPal.me forward slash s chundan. That's PayPal.me forward slash forward slash s chundan. Ch- chundan spelt Chan Dan. Or you can go to my Facebook page, uh, Sukant Chandan, and uh, the, 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 the paying methods all over that. And also the DVD. Um, sorry, the DVD is £10. The book is £15. So add another pound if you're in UK or another £3.50 if you want it posted globally. So that's uh, £10 for the DVD, £15 for the book. Uh, paypal.me forward slash S Chandan or go to my Facebook page. I, I, I'm going to set up all the different Facebook pages for the documentary and the book. And I'll be doing a lot more uh, interviews like this on radio programs and TV and, and reviews will be going out, out there. So we're just right at the beginning of promoting this. So please, you know, if there's anyone in the United States or anywhere around the world, invite me to your city, your town, your village. Let's do a book launch and a documentary screening and let's get these conversations going globally. No doubt about it. All right. See you on the other side of the break. So who the fuck is the evil motherfucker? I'll tell you who the evil motherfucker is. It's mankind. We just don't take responsibility. They blame the devil for everything. You know? The devil came, conquered our fucking lands, conquered our people. Oh, everything's been conquered with Bible and sword. You know? This continent that we're in is my continent. Mexica. Mexica, people, dog. We're the ones that are being told to get the fuck out of here, dog. When this is my fucking continent, how the fuck am I supposed to fucking leave my home when this is my shit? I'm the feathered serpent. Those pyramids in this fucking continent were built by my fucking people, dog. Get that shit straight. Those are my temples. My people's temples. Come to my fucking land, the fucking borders. They say get the fuck out of here. The fuck you think you're fucking talking to? Motherfuckers don't know his history, his lineage. I'm the serpent. I'm Lucifer rising. I came to oppose all this evil. The real evil. You know what I'm saying? These motherfuckers come in here with Bible and sword. They try to conquer your people and slay them in the name of God. Well, if that's the case, then I'm the motherfucking devil, homie. Mexica! 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 Mexica!
back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Sukant Chandan. Again, um, we've been up to this point chatting about uh, the new documentary that he's put together, the new book on the, uh, well, on on Muammar Gaddafi on the occasion of the uh, fifth anniversary of his assassination, but uh, also, you know, talking about the significance of Libya, the significance of Gaddafi, uh, both internally uh, to Libyans, but also to Africa, to the global south, and really to the entire world. I think it's a very valuable project. It's um, it's one that is near and dear to my heart, of course, uh, not only because I contributed to it, but because I think that Libya is in, in many ways a, a template for what's right and what's wrong with the Western left, for uh, what's wrong with the state of our non-existent anti-war movement. And um, part of that really segues me into another topic of discussion, one that Sukhan, I know you're very active on in the UK, uh, and that is the the <clears throat> rising fascist climate, the rising racism, the rising neo-colonial attitudes that are now being openly and overtly having their expression, not simply with individuals on the street, but in many ways with policies coming directly out of government. So um, I want to just start there. There's a lot of discussion. There was a lot of disagreement, even amongst the left, about Brexit, about the nature of Brexit. So I want to just start with your general assessment of what Brexit was, meaning what the issue was, what the vote was, and what that reflects about the changing nature of society in the UK, but also broadly in the West. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's the first time I'm, I'm announcing now publicly that actually Richard Sudan, who's a comrade of mine at the Malcolm X movement, also a journalist at, uh, at RT, me and him are co-editing and, and uh, co-authoring a book on Brexit, which will be out in January uh, in a few months time. Um, so where do we start Start with this? I think just, just, just you know, there's always a battle and there's an ongoing battle between basically, you know, the the the, the imperialist ruling circles in, in Britain and in every Western country, but just, just focusing on Britain, Britain for a second, and then the resistance from working class people uh, uh, opposing exploitation and racism and sexism, etc., um, just opposing general imperialist exploitation. Now, uh, black communities, and by black, I mean non-white, um, African Asian communities in general, black communities have been fighting against racism obviously for generations particularly as we've been coming here in larger numbers post second world war it was particularly hard for us in the 50s 60s and 70s and 80s we had a little bit of breathing space in the late 90s going in the early 2000s as a result of our resistance i can't go into all the details i'm quite slapdash in my historical appraisal here um now the, the, the state obviously has always used uh, racism to divide people and to weaken working class communities. Now, the white working class movement has never really addressed the problems of infestation of racism within it. It's never done that strategically and in principle. There's been moments where there's been some unity between black and white working class, uh, but in general, that work hasn't really been achieved uh, because our white comrades in general I don't know if I can call them all white uh, or comrades, at least our, our colleagues uh, in the white left. Very, very, very few of them are understand this problem, frankly, understand its depth and are doing anything about it. I mean, I work with Arthur Scargill, who is probably the best socialist leader that this country has produced, perhaps ever. Uh, I worked with him for several years as an, in, in, in a position as a national organizer. 
in the Socialist Labour Party, which Arthur Scargill was the leader and he still is. And I, and I love Arthur Scargill. Um, he led the most radical movement against the UK state, uh, which was the minor strike of 1984-85. But I also know Arthur Scargill has, whole, has a lot of positions which are UK left nationalist as well. And I'm, I'm saying that because the left and Brexit, it's nothing new. It hasn't come out of, an, of, of, of nowhere. It has a long history, which Marx and Engels talked about. And we can actually go be before Marx and Engels. You can read Cedric Robinson's Black Marxism and other books um, that, that, that shows the problem of colonialism in radical movements within, within, within Western uh, peoples as well. Now, a central thing I like to say, Eric, about this is this is a replay of the collapse of Western socialism in 1914. Very much Lenin's analysis around that time was in denouncing the sellout of the Second International. We're seeing a replay of that now. And it's around a century, exactly a century uh, later, actually, that we're seeing that, which I don't think is a coincidence as well. Because every century you kind of have a, a repetition in a sort of way of what happened uh, previously. And every decade as well, there's some kind of repetition in terms of economic crisis. But anyway, to the, to the collapse of the Second International and the parallel today, we can see now how many socialists and communists across the world ended up supporting Brexit. I, I just don't understand how any communist or socialist outside of Britain can take a position on Brexit without speaking to migrant organizations in this country. It's, I just don't understand how people made that decision. No one discussed it. Not, not that I am the, rep the representative of migrant communities here. I'm not, but I'm part of the political community. And I know others. But, but you know, things like John Peel just said, and um, um, what's his name? James Petrus and many other people and communist organizations, socialist organizations. If you read them, it's like they all seem to agree that taking a UK nationalist position against the European Union was somehow the radical position to take. If, we, if you go back and read Lenin's denunciation of the Second International and the Heinemans and the, uh, and the Hendersons, etc., who supported their own imperialist governments against other imperialist uh, uh, governments and, and, and people in the West in, in, in supporting the First World War, we got the exact parallel today. We have self-proclaimed socialists and communists supporting imperialist governments against other imperialist governments or imperialist blocs. We have communists and socialists in Britain and across the world talking about the sovereignty, the quote-unquote sovereignty of the United Kingdom vis-a-vis -vis the European Union. I mean, it's amazing that people who call themselves Leninists and Marxists and socialists and communists can't see the massive, obvious, glaring parallels okay, between, just, the, between, between the two historical let me, let me play. Let me play devil's advocate yeah, then and, and see if I can, if I can articulate a at least a little bit of that position. Um, the argument would be that while what you're saying is true, that, uh, that, that any communist or socialist or anarchist or, or whatever shouldn't necessarily be in support of any form of nationalism, they could argue, well, Brexit, though, is an attempt to undermine the international imperial project of finance capital, that being the European Union, that the European Union is the political expression of the rule of finance capital in Europe, and that to undo that project is an attempt to unseat, uh, to the extent possible, the forces of finance capital that really rule the roost in Brussels, and, of course, 
course, in the major capitals of Europe and in the city of London as well, that the uh, that the attempt to bring down the European Union is by definition an attempt to bring down Wall Street and the city of London. That they would say that your use of, of, of Lenin is maybe convenient for your argument, but it ignores, say, Lenin's analysis of imperialism and finance capital. So I want to just pose that to you and, and, and ask you to respond to that. Not saying that I agree with all of that, but I think that would be at least partially the response. No, thanks for that, Eric. Um, okay, I'm going to do something. I'm going to respond to that in a way that's very unpopular at the moment. I'm going to talk about actually existing social and political forces. <gasps> I'm, yes. <laughs> I'm going to talk about... I'm actually going to talk about no investigation, no right to speak, right? I'm going to actually appraise the actual forces at plays, not abstracted kind of delusions and illusions and fantasies that people are operating in when talking about this. Who is supporting Brexit and who is opposing Brexit, right? People, those forces that are supporting Brexit are overwhelmingly the entire, I'm, I'm not, there's no hyperbole here whatsoever, Eric. I'm talking about every single far-right organization, every single fascist organization, yes. every single colonial unionist organization, including uh, the, the, the loyalists and the unionists in Northern Ireland as well, every single of them, UKIP, the right, the right wing of the Tory party and the Tory party, the Tory-aligned uh, section of the UK state, military, intelligence services, monarchy, etc. These are the pro-Brexit forces. Who are the anti... I mean, there's a tiny, insignificant amount of left-wingers in the pro-Brexit camp. They are totally overshadowed by a vicious, colonial, far-right, uh, unified movement, which is Brexit. Who is leading the struggle against Brexit? It's the Scottish Nationalist Party. They're not racist. They're not pro-colonial. They have their problems. They're not my exact cup of mint tea or, or, or desi chai, masala chai or whatever, but... They are not a reactionary right-wing racist force. They're a progressive force. They're pro-immigrant. They're pro-progressive politics. They're, 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 with, with their contradictions, they're pro-global south. They're anti-trident, anti-nuclear nuclear missiles. They're anti-war. Also, Sinn Féin are supporting the movement against Brexit. Also, the SDLP, which is kind of... Can you just remind people who Sinn Féin is? Sinn Féin is the Liberation Party of Ireland. Thank they're, you. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the, um, the Irish Republican Army were also involved in Irish freedom, closely associated with Sinn Féin. Um, also, the, the, the Green Party in Scotland and England and Wales and Northern Ireland, also uh, other kind of centre-left organisations, including the Welsh Nationalist Plaid Cymru, which, are, which, which is basically a socialist organisation. Uh, so these are the anti-Brexit forces. So... So, so I don't understand how anyone who can call themselves a, a left winger or a socialist or a Marxist or a radical or anything can can identify it with with with, with the Brexit uh, with the Brexit campaign, which is just a vicious far right campaign. So let's 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 be a bit honest and let's let's actually org, uh, uh, analyze um, the actually existing social and political forces. And once you do that, why would anyone? I don't know. I don't understand why any anti racist and anti imperialist would support Brexit. Well, I think, and again, to play devil's advocate here a little bit, um, not that I'm speaking from my personal opinion, because mine is a little bit different than this, but um, that 
essentially what you're describing can be flipped on its head that while all many of those forces that you that you mentioned are uh anti-brexit it's because they are co-opted by liberal elites they are beholden to foundations and all of the other uh organs of soft power for their for their financing and so forth that in other words that what you're describing is the left the 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 center left liberal sellout of the uh, truly anti-imperialist position, which wants to see a dissolution of the European Union. Now, I think that that's kind of uh, uh, overly simplistic and 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 well incorrect analysis. But I do think that there is a large section of the left that would make that analysis, and um, they would say that anybody who is against Brexit is de facto supporting uh, international imperialism and international finance capital. Listen, I me or anyone else doesn't need to do anything against the European Union. The European Union is crumbling. It's just it's, it's crumbling on the edges. It's crumbling at the center. It's crumbling all over the place. Now, is that is that a reason to celebrate for 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 the global anti-imperialist and socialist struggle? Mm, there might be a few opportunities, but what I'm hearing from China is is they're saying no, we don't particularly want the European Union to crumble. I mean, the position of uh, global anti-imperialism of the socialist states has always to support actually the European Union as a counterweight to the to to U.S. imperialism. You can agree or disagree about that. That's just a that's just a fact. That, that, that most socialist countries and national liberation countries, that's the position that they've taken and that they take. But that aside, I mean, do we want the European Union to crumble on the basis of a far right and fascist movements and well, projects? And, uh, that's, and that right there is exactly the point. I mean, you're really hitting the nail on the head here. That, that the question is not solely uh, whether the European Union is good or bad. It's under what conditions do you want to see the European Union undermined? And I think that there is a very strong case to be made that under the current conditions, meaning conditions of Brexit and uh, Euro, so-called Euroscepticism around the, around the continent, what that really is is an attempt by the far right wing of the European continent to essentially revert back to the to the golden days of their sovereign nationalist forms of chauvinism and imperialism versus the more internationalist liberal friendly version of imperialism and neocolonialism as practiced by the European Union. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, but 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 also just on a very kind of just a very kind of immediate human level, and I think you know, human things should inform our politics. You know, perish <laughs> Being, the thought. <laughs> you know, we should be pro-humanity and 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 kind of harmonize humanity's kind of existence with the universe. I know that sounds crazy, hippie stuff, but you know, I, I hope that we're moved by by a kindness to other living creatures and 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 humans, uh, especially. But on a, on a, just a human level. We can see that Brexit is negatively impacting people's lives economically already, even even though Brexit hasn't actually happened yet. We can see people being killed in the streets because of uh, the rise of racism as uh, as as a result of a riding on the Brexit crest. We can see a massive rise in race hate crimes and attacks against migrants, including German and Spanish and Italian people, in in in, in this country. We've seen you know mothers being killed in the streets. Uh, that's Joe Cox. 
uh, as a result of the rise of Brexit racism. And let's just let's just remind listeners, especially those in the U.S. Joe Cox was a minister in Parliament. This is this is a this is a woman who was representing a constituency who was murdered by a far right uh, uh, lunatic who was supporting Brexit and supporting the fascist movements and saw her as a I guess what a messenger of multiculturalism that needed yeah, exactly. to be removed. Yep, yep. She was, she was, she was shot and chopped up in broad daylight. You know, a middle-class white mother of a couple of kids, member of parliament, as you said. She was, she was killed. He shot Britain first as he killed her, uh, which is also an, a fascist organization here, Britain first. And um, he, and he, and he, he killed her because he saw her as her, her being pro-African and Asian, pro-immigration, and as a left winger. I mean, I disagree with her politics in relation to Syria. But she wasn't killed because she had bad politics on Syria. Right, exactly. She was, she was killed because she was seen as identifying with people like uh, you and I and our African comrades. And isn't it interesting, Sukant, how many people who uh, claim to be anti-imperialists, claim to be leftists uh, on various issues internationally were dead quiet on the murder of Joe Cox, uh, particularly because they didn't like her position on Syria because she was anti-Assad and, and was vocally uh, supportive of policies that I would be against. But regardless of that, that this notion that somehow, you know, a person's position on an issue like Syria, which is relatively divisive, is somehow makes them non-human, not worthy of defense, and somehow uh, overshadows the rising racism and fascism. This is absolutely disgusting. Yeah, I, yeah absolutely, Eric. I think, it was, I think it was a little bit worse than that. Unfortunately, some of our... I'm well, being some, nice. Yeah, some of my former comrades, not only did they do that, Eric, but they basically justified her killing. Yes. They, basic, they basically said she deserved it. Yes. She, she, they basically said, well, if that's the position you're going to take on Syria, well, that's what you're going to get. Right, exactly. I mean, come on, you know, you're supposed to be a flipping decolonial anti-imperialist socialist. You're celebrating the murder of, of, of a mother? In broad daylight. I mean, not okay. Let's okay. Let, let me be. Let me be a bit more, you know, sharper with my with my words. You're not celebrating, but you're you're basically saying, what do you expect? You're basically saying, it was basically all right. I mean, you can you can. Un they're basically saying, well, you can positively understand why someone would want to kill someone like that. I mean, really? Can you see how you've just corrupted yourself and how easy it is to slip into being a fascist collaborator? It's that easy, Eric. Well, and you and I are probably two of the very, very, very few people who talk about the infiltration by various fascist elements and various fascist ideologies into what we like to refer to, and I'm increasingly becoming wary of, the term anti-imperialism, because it's it's now taken on this uh, very sort of fascistic character uh, because of the infiltration, because of the positions that some people have taken to the point where, uh, you know... It's a real question whether, you know, people who may agree on issues like Libya or Syria are even uh, comrades at all or if they're just fascists who have infiltrated our movement. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I agree. And it, and it kind of breaks my heart hearing you say that. But you're not wrong, Eric. And the, 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 the phrase anti-imperialism is increasingly becoming synonymous with a whole bunch of very nasty fascist ideologies and, yes. uh, uh, and circles. That's why when I talk about anti-imperialism, I add another phrase called decolonial anti-imperialism or black power socialism or black liberation anti-imperialism to kind of uh, to, to, to counter distinct and to counter that fascist infiltration. Because when you bring decolonialism into it, you know, these fascists, they, 
they don't even know what decolonialism is. They don't even know what decoloniality is. They, you know, they haven't got flipping uh, clue about this stuff. Well, but, I, I'm, I'm sorry, Sukhan. I just want to make sure that people understand. Cause there's a lot of people who aren't as you know deeply engaged in in you know some of these like ridiculous circles as you or I might be. I want to just point something out here. One example of what we're talking about, so that we're clear when we when we talk about the kind of fascist infiltration. You have people who you have people who claim to be defenders of Syria who claim to be uh, anti-imperialist, that is to say, in opposition to the forces of empire that are destroying Syria as we speak. Uh, and their argument is, well, you shouldn't do that because Syrians are essentially white like Europeans. Therefore, these are like your brothers and, and sisters, and you should defend them. Not that this is a global South country that has been victimized by imperialism for more than a century and a half. Not that, you know, that there are death squads that are being used by uh, Western intelligence agencies for the purposes of regime change and destabilization. No, that it is really because, see, Syrians are actually white people, and you don't want all of these dirty, dirty brown people coming to your country, do you? Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, how did we get here? <laughs> you know? and, and I say that it's I'm, a reality. I mean, that's yeah, I'm, that's. I'm exasperated. I'm frustrated. Uh, it's 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 a crazy development historical development that we've come to this this place but i mean you know i say it in an exasperated way but it's a very very serious question is how did we actually get here you touched upon it we touched upon it this whole conversation there's no chavez to kind of you know straighten that which is crooked we just haven't got global leadership you know and you know with the collapse of the second international around circa 1914 uh, when lenin denounced that lenin was leading a, 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 a massive revolutionary movement that captured state power towards the end of the First World War. So he had the prestige, he had the leadership to correct things. You can't argue with Lenin, man. He had, he had a revolutionary party. <laughs> yeah, he had a revolutionary party and a revolutionary country. It's like, well, he might have a point. And when Chavez was saying what, what he was saying, because he, he had a project that was national and regional and global, people had to give respect and say, okay. But, but then look how fickle people are, uh, Eric, in 2011. Morales came out in direct and overt support to Gaddafi, as did Fidel Castro, as did Hugo Chavez, as did Daniel Ortega, and many, uh, uh, as did uh, Mugabe and, 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 and others. And still, Western lefty, Western white lefty doesn't, and Western black lefty doesn't want to hear as well. But, you know, let's not give the African Asians in the West a pass who also failed to come to the defense of the Libyan people and other Syrian people. They are also implica implicated in this Eurocentric corruption. But so, I'm Go on. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, so so all all, all, all of this stuff is going on, but you know we it it befalls people like us at the grassroots to be doing that hard work as you're doing with your radio programs and your work, Eric and other comrades are. You know we we need to put out more documentaries, more books, and to really go out go out for the hearts and minds and really content. I think I think once we do, as we've seen in our experience, as I'm not invited onto RT because I smashed their position at the last crosstalk I was on. It's called Human Tidal Wave. You can go onto YouTube and, and check it out. Where I quote Putin. Putin was right to denounce racial supremacism uh, last year at the at the event in Moscow commemorating the victory against fascism. So why 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 are people promoting racial supremacism around anti-imperialism when you put decoloniality into it? When you understand that we should never replicate in third world nationalism and anti-imperialist internationalism that colonial supremacist nationalism of the colonizer and of the imperialists, once you understand the way colonialism has impacted these 
has developed these oppressions, and when we have a a a a a a, 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 a counter struggle and a counter framework to deal with that, then this fascist infiltration can't get through, and that's why decolonial politics or and black radical politics, black liberation politics, black power politics is so fundamentally crucial to this. Black power socialism, black liberation is going to free not only black people, but it's also going to free um, the white working class of the West as well. And I think what the Black Panthers did with their alliances with the with the organizations like the White Panthers and uh, the, the what are they called? The White Patriots, etc. All these kind of quote unquote hillbilly radical organizations were an interesting and important model of how we develop a united working class movement led by uh, the Black Liberation Movement, because it's only going to be black people who, especially black women, who were the first and the greatest victims of this and who have been the greatest resistant forces of this who are going to liberate humanity. You know, there's I don't want to get too inside baseball, you know, as far as as far as getting into the nitty gritty of all these different circles and everything else. I would like to keep it on a broader level. And and, and the one question I want to ask you as we're running out of time is this um, in the wake of Brexit. What can we say about the um, and and by the way, let me say, let me let me back up. In the wake of Brexit and in the wake of the rise of Donald Trump on this side of the Atlantic, what can we say about the changing nature of the struggle that we're engaged in? Because in my view, this struggle is changing, and we're essentially facing what I consider to be a two-front war now. Uh, two fronts uh, domestically, because you have, on the one hand, uh, somebody like a Hillary Clinton who's going to be president. That is, I have zero doubt in my mind. And she will escalate the war in Syria. She will escalate U.S. military aggression around the world. She will escalate saber-rattling and, and belligerent talk against Russia and all of these other very dangerous things. So we have a fight on that front, and it is uh, it is of central importance because it is the front line of the struggle against, you know, to use the phrase, actually existing imperialism. Uh-huh. On the other hand, we now have a rising reactionary, racist, dare I say fascist, although maybe fascist is not yet what it is, maybe it's it's proto-fascist or something like that uh, movement in this country that is really much bigger than Donald Trump. Trump is merely just uh, you know a figurehead, a kind of uh, flavor of the month. But Trump is going to lose this election, and he's going to leave the political stage. And this movement is going to stick around, and it's going to wait for the next leader, the next slicker politician, one who's more PR savvy, who's more articulate than Donald Trump, who doesn't raise some of the uh, uncomfortable. Uh, and and quite right positions that Donald Trump does about free trade and so forth. What happens when that guy hits the stage after 16 years, let's say, of Obama and Hillary? You're looking at a very volatile, very dangerous political climate in the U.S., just as you are in the U.K. in the wake of Brexit. So what does this tell us about the changing nature of our struggle, Sukant? Yeah, I think it's what we're what we're seeing um, is the I mean, social democracy is dead. The 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 very last dying gasps of Western social democracy are things like um, Cyprus with um, Syriza in Greece, and uh, things like uh, Corbyn in 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 Britain as well. But they're they're failing. They failed before they even begun. Um, the problem with social democracy, although it's dead, 
because social democracy is such a a, a massive institution uh, within the West, you know, you know, there's millions of uh, people and families. It's 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 their it's their existence. It's who they are. You know, Democratic Labour Party, whatever, or the, the kind of the left leftist kind of sections of it. The problem with social democracy, although it's dead, people were still trying to resuscitate something that's dead for generations to come. So, every, so everyone's totally distracted with uh, Corbyn here. And Corbyn, you know, it just doesn't, does nothing for people. But people are distracted with that. People were distracted with Saritza before. And then so and so as social democracy dies, it just promotes imperialism and fascism now um, directly, indirectly. Uh, also, the right wing continue to do what they're doing. The right wing are emboldened. We we have we have an increasingly difficult situation. Yep. The terrain has changed. It hasn't fundamentally changed. It's just become more intense, as far as I can understand it. Um, the last you know, fifteen twenty years since I've been active, you know, I've been I've been up and down the country, you know, shoulder to shoulder with brothers who are who who are literally smacking down fascist provocations in our community, um, organized fascist provocation and spontaneous uh, fascist and racist provocations. We've been there, done that. We continue to do that. That becomes more intense. It's again, it's 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 it's, it's contending with different uh, uh, balance of forces. The balance of forces are much more uh, against us at the moment. Um, we've seen for the last 25 years a general downward slide of the radical movement. In that down, downward trajectory, there's sometimes little uh, little kind of bump ups of of, of, of radical uh, pushback, which we've seen. But it's a general decline now. In this situation, potentially a great opportunity is open up. Potentially, and when, the reason I say potentially is because we need a certain factors that are not in place to, to to take advantage of those potentials. One is some strategic organizational capacity and lead, and, and two is leadership and initiative uh, around that. And we, we don't, yeah, we don't, we don't, we don't have that. Um, and so we need to build that. But but the, the potential opens up. And social democracy cannot uh, provide answers. A dead social democracy is not and cannot provide answers with people, although people are uh, en masse deluded about that. And obviously, uh, people are gravitating towards uh, far-right racist and fascist ideas, but that's not going to get people anywhere either, ultimately, as well. Although people, you know, people will be racist, even though they'll lose their house, they'll lose their living standards, but they'll still be very motivated to be ra uh, racist, because racism is probably the single most motivating political motivator of Western uh, white people as a historical uh, uh, force. So opportunities are opening up. How we can see how we can seize that opportunity and to what extent we can take advantage of that, I'm not too positive about, but the contradictions are intensifying. And as long as uh, uh, we are able to organize at liberty or so if some of us are in prison, we can still use that as a platform to mobilize and organize as uh, Mumi Abu Jamal and other people have shown so brilliantly. Um, there's possibility. So you know, God has given us this uh, this life and this historical phase uh, for the good and the bad of it uh, to test us and see what we can make out of uh, the situation we can um, for our people. So we do our best, Eric, going forward. That's right. And uh, in many ways, and you and I have said this to each other uh, on numerous occasions before, but in many ways, we have to remind ourselves that it's not always necessarily uh, that any given generation's responsibility is to win the fight. Sometimes it's to hold the line. And uh, it, on on a number of issues, I, th I do think that um, that is part of our part of our struggle, part of the struggle that uh, we were born into this particular period of history, that uh, part of what 
it is that we have to do is we have to defend what has been won to this point and hopefully create the conditions for future generations to carry on this struggle and to ultimately uh, see it through to victory. And I, I, I don't say that in a hyperbolic or a grandiose way. I mean that in a very practical way that when we feel overwhelmed by the forces arrayed against us, we have to remember that part of our responsibility is not only to win, it is to keep up the fight. Absolutely, Eric. Absolutely. Thanks so much for this conversation. It's been really, really kind of, uh, I think it's been, it's been, it's it's an opportunity for me to kind of gather my thoughts and to have a conversation with you, Eric, and we don't get to have a conversation uh, very frequently and to share this with the uh, with the readers and supporters of Counterpunch magazine is also, I think, is an excellent way for us to have the conversation. And I send my solidarity and my comradely uh, salams and lal salams to all, all the listeners. And I also would like to co-sign what you said about Counterpunch uh, website and magazine. It absolutely is, you know, I, I, I you know, at times through 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 the decades, I may have kind of. Um, had a few uh, differences, what I think is the editorial approach for Counterpunch. But even in those times, what you said in your opening, Eric, is very correct. Counterpunch has always been a platform whereby slightly contentious uh, anti-imperialist leftist views can actually contend with each other in a constructive way in this very important platform. And there's very few platforms like Counterpunch in the English language out there. uh, on on the internet. So thanks to all the all the previous and the current people who are, who who are ensuring Counterpunch remains uh, a very foremost uh, important radical website and magazine. Thanks for that, Sukhan. And again, uh, listeners, uh, get in touch with Sukhan. Get the uh, documentary. Get the book. Um, Hopefully we can get that out to as many um, uh, outlets for purchase as possible. But for now, uh, do what you can to get your hands on the book, including a little little contribution from yours truly, if that is any additional motivation to get the <laughs> Absolutely. book. Absolutely. Um, and uh, as always, Sukant Chandan, activist, organizer, coordinator of the Malcolm X movement. Thanks for coming on the show. Listeners, thank you as always for listening. Speak to you again next week. Yeah.